0: Donald Trump's day in court, and what it all means to the Georgia case.
1: The people in charge of this country do not love America. They hate Donald Trump.
0: Welcome to Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And
2: I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.
0: It is a chaotic, surreal, momentous day down in Miami where our colleague the AJC, Tamar Hallerman, is down there getting a, a, a glimpse, a firsthand glimpse of what could be coming to Georgia In a few weeks or months, however quickly District Attorney Fannie Willis moves and what she ends up deciding. So we'll be talking a lot about that, what it means to Georgia's case, also what Governor Brian Kemp has to say about the indictment against Donald Trump, you you might be surprised, plus a final wrap-up of the Georgia GOP convention, what happened those last few hours uh, of the weekend. It's been a very busy weekend and a very busy start to the week.
2: Uh, yes, it is like the news never stops. And it also feels like right now the news almost always includes Donald Trump. Um, the constant theme at the Georgia DOP convention over the weekend was Donald Trump, either candidates and delegates love Donald Trump, they were there because of Donald Trump, or there were many longtime Republicans who we had spoken with, who are worried about the future of the party because of Trump, because the loyalty to Trump seems to be driving um, a lot of people's decisions, and they're worried it's going to eventually drive people out of the party, if it hasn't already. So um, we rolled straight from there into these indictments, uh, right after Donald Trump spoke from the stage for more than 90 minutes and talked plenty about the indictments against him, um, said the election was rigged, the court system is rigged, it's not about me, it's about you, but really, it is about Donald Trump. It's always about Donald Trump these days, and that is probably the existential threat for Republicans in Georgia right now.
0: We heard a lot from Republican delegates on stage who said, and speakers who said, there's no schism, that's just media narrative, that's just the Atlanta newspaper, and then we heard a lot privately from plenty of delegates who came up to both me and you and said, There's a schism and it's bad. Uh, Well, we will get so much deeper into that over the course of the show.
1: This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. And we're back to Politically
0: Georgia from the AJC, your well-rested hosts, Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy. I say well-rested tongue-in-cheek. It's been a long couple of days, but look, we've got so much more to talk about because we we have our colleague, Tamar Hallerman, who's down there covering for the AJC the latest in the federal indictment against Donald Trump. Uh, He pleaded not guilty in federal court in Miami to criminal charges, that he risked disclosure of defense secrets and then tried to block the government's efforts to reclaim those very sensitive classified documents. Donald Trump was booked and immediately escorted up to the 13th floor of the federal courthouse in Miami and outside our colleague Tamar reports on a scene that was both chaotic and surreal demonstrators and counter-demonstrators and pro-Trump supporters who actually sung Happy Birthday to the Former President. Happy Birthday to you! Happy Birthday to you! Okay. Happy Birthday to the President! Happy Birthday to you! So, a chaotic moment Uh, And a surreal moment, but a historic moment, because Donald Trump is the first president of the United States ever facing federal charges, a federal indictment. But we're also here to talk about how that relates to Fonnie Willis's ongoing investigation in Fulton County to Donald Trump. And this is interesting, because New York Attorney General Letitia James said that state-led prosecutions against Trump may be put on hold until the federal classified documents case plays out, which could be months. Here's what she said.
1: So, in all likelihood, I believe that my case, as well as DA Bragg um, and um, the Georgia case,
0: um, will unfortunately have to be adjourned pending the outcome of the federal case. Um, so, it all depends upon uh, the scheduling of this particular case. That was New York Attorney General Leticia James. She was saying that on a live taping of the Pod Safe America podcast. Patricia, we don't have any word from Fonnie Willis's office that that's. Actually, going to happen. This is all speculation. But there are attorneys out there who say that it could happen.
2: Yeah, and that has been the question this entire time. Once it became clear that there was not just one criminal case against Donald Trump, but at least four and possibly more in the country New York, Fulton County, uh, the federal. Investigation into the secret documents case that we were just talking about, a separate January 6th potential criminal inquiry also going on. Um, And again, these are just the ones so far. Others could crop up. And the question has always been because no defendant, no person can be in the same place at the same time. And judicial processes follow a pretty specific timeline and they can't all happen simultaneously and they're in multiple jurisdictions with completely different sets of accusations Mm -hmm. and evidence we have a problem here it's very clear someone's going to have to go first there will have to be some kind of prioritizing and it's not clear if the prioritizing is going to be because it is federal versus state, state, state. It's not clear if it would be what is the strongest case, what's the case that's closest to getting to trial. That is what we don't know right now. It's fascinating to hear Letitia James make her comments um, because uh, federal charges frequently do trump state charges in many cases. But we, th- again, we are just in such uncharted territory right now. Add to all of that, this man is running for president and he's the front runner for the GOP nomination. And he's the former president. This is just so many different dynamics going at once. It does feel like all of the prosecutors need to have a logical, logistical sequencing of all of these processes. It can't be that this man is showing up in four different jurisdictions on four different days with the campaign happening and him saying they're all trumped up charges. It, it just has, it already feels chaotic. And that is really the exact opposite environment you want in order for these court cases to be taken seriously and treated like really the solemn situations that they really are.
0: I think this is the scenario that, that the district attorney and her staff is also going through right now seeing how feasible it is to move forward when you already have these charges in Manhattan. And in federal court as well, which ones kind of take precedence? How do you juggle all those demanding schedules? They look, they could still go forward in August or as early as August is what her office has indicated. And we could have a decision then. It, she may not even move to indict uh, uh, the former president, although it certainly seems likely. Or, you know, you could have a delay of a few months or however. I know that they've, they've put in, you know, months of work and it must be really difficult for them you know, being so close to this potential decision to have to delay it if they do, we'll see. Um, There's very little information coming out, but that was, I just thought that was noteworthy to share that the New York attorney general um, says that that is a likely scenario, at least in her mind. And she does have a case against the former president herself that she's working on. Let's hear from Governor Brian Kemp in his most extensive comments since the federal indictment came out, speaking to Bob Costa of CBS News
3: it is concerning but i think also it's a distraction you know it's distracting from what i think people need to be focused on in the presidential race and i also think that there's a lot of people uh, around the country including myself that are concerned about uh, the fairness issue here on the federal agencies like the fbi and the department of justice so you have that aspect of it as well
0: and he goes on to say that that Republicans voters should not be bogged down by this case don't let it distract them but he does say it's concerning patricia you know this is this is a governor who has been at odds with the former president for a long time has has been recently a lot more willing to openly criticize the former president and you hear him saying look there's some uh, there's some concerning issues in that indictment
2: Yeah, and this is really notable because there are so many Republicans, especially Republicans in Georgia, who are not willing to say that we spoke with uh, Congressman Mike Collins, who is a very close ally of Donald Trump's, we spoke with him at the GOP convention. And he said all of these charges are just Russiagate 2.0. He dismissed them entirely as being a part of more partisan actions against Donald Trump. And also what he and Andrew Clyde and Trump's closest loyalists call a two tiered justice system. Um, that is certainly the Donald Trump camp line. So for Brian Kemp to say, listen, he is innocent until proven guilty, which is also what he said, um, but that these charges are serious and concerning. These charges are serious and concerning. This is not breaking news. However, for Governor Kemp to continue to be pretty frank about Donald Trump, he's not taking pot shots. He's not looking for a chance to speak out against the president. There is a lot more he could say, but he's choosing not to. He's choosing his words carefully. It's very obvious. But I think the fact that he is speaking to the media, not just the media, but CBS News, Um, I didn't know I was going to see that anytime soon, (laughs) because CBS News is definitely uh, seen as part of the fake news media, as, as far as Trump world is concerned, for Brian Kemp to be speaking to national news when he knows these questions are going to come up. And then he has a very carefully crafted, but very obviously accurate response. That is a very um, significant, and for most Republicans, frankly, an unusual position for a leader to be in at this point. So, Kemp's for sure carving out his own space in this conversation.
0: And remember, not long ago, he, for the first time, openly bashed Donald Trump over a tweet the former president said, praising over a tweet the former president sent, praising North Korea's dictator Brian Kemp was among many Republicans, but one of the first who said, why are you praising a murderous dictator? This is this has gone too far. And so he was asked also by CBS if it was time for the Republican Party to turn the page on Donald Trump.
3: Well, certainly the primary process will decide that. Uh, I think a lot of the candidates have the opportunity to decide that as well and stay focused on a message that can win. Swing voters in states like Georgia. I mean, the road to white the road to the White House is coming through here. Uh, that's what I'm focused on, making sure that we can win Georgia. Uh, we did that in November of 2022 because we told people what we were for. We told people what we were going to do, and we also reminded them that we have completed things that we promised we would do in the past, in past campaigns and past administrations. But uh, also, think we have to stay very focused on the future.
0: Georgia, that's kind of been. Governor Kemp's M.O., he's been saying this even before his his re-election victory, but particularly loudly after, now that he has another term uh, in the bag, right, now that he has a sweeping victory over both Donald Trump's endorsed challenger, David Perdue, and Stacey Abrams, he's been saying, look, my blueprint is a blueprint that can work. He still doesn't rule out a run for president. We still think that's very, very unlikely. But at the same time, he's saying that this message about the economy, about public safety, about immigration, whatever it might be, whatever the big issues are that Republicans should focus on the future rather than the past, rather than Donald Trump's 2020 obsessions.
2: Yeah. And again, this is where he is carving out a lane for himself. Um, It's never a great path to the presidency when it's major donors who are looking for a name instead of kind of those grassroots activists. That's typically not how somebody gets into the White House. That's definitely how uh, Jeb Bush's candidacy exploded before it ever got started. It was sort of a group of um, toward the center businessmen who said, boy, Jeb, Bush would be a terrific president, and then uh, very few GOP voters in the grassroots of Iowa and New Hampshire agreed. Um, However, I think that Brian Kemp has a different flavor. He really is Uh, a lot more closer to the ground. He's a lot more um, popular in his own state, I think, than even somebody like Jeb Bush was. He's one of the most popular governors in the country, no matter what party we're talking about. Um, But we are facing the reality that this is a very late hour to be uh, starting a presidential campaign. But for him to continue to say that he's open to the idea, I think that really means he's open to possibilities. Let's consider that a VP nomination, if somebody besides Donald Trump were to get in there as president, and then Listen, a break the glass in case of emergency situation mm-hmm. doesn't happen often, but neither does a former president being indicted in multiple jurisdictions on multiple charges with serious criminal allegations and several different courtrooms that he needs to be in all before his primary start in January of 2024. You know, we're we are in uncharted territory, so Kemp hasn't closed the door. It's probably not going to open. But in politics these days. You never know.
0: You never know. Uh, One last thing before break. This is what Governor Kemp said directly when asked if he is considering a presidential bid.
3: I'm staying focused on Georgia and and making sure that Republicans can win Georgia in 2024. I mean, that's really what all my political work has been looking, uh, been focused on, not only at the national level, but also holding our strong majorities in the Georgia General Assembly. So. But right now, that's what I'm focused on.
0: So a complete focus on the future. He's not really talking about his his particular plans. He's also not ruling anything out. Let's take a quick
1: break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com.
0: And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution hosts Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy. We're not only the hosts of this podcast, we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community this moment right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts. So you always know what is really going on. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to mention before we, we go into the Georgia Republican Convention, we should also mention that the governor is off on an 11 day trip. He is going, this is so confusing to write a headline about because he's going, the Georgia governor is going to the nation of Georgia. And, um, so that, that is pretty much what we put in the headline, but it's very confusing. (laughs) There's two Georges and he is going to the other one. Uh, he will be in Tbilisi for a few days. And then he is going to Paris for the biannual Paris air show, which is a big showcase of the latest and greatest technologies in the aviation industry, which of course, it's kind of a big deal in Georgia, given that Gulfstream and Delta Airlines are based in Georgia's, uh, both in Georgia. And uh, there's a m- number of electric vehicle type uh, green energy aviation companies that are also looking to expand throughout the U.S. And Georgia could be a place for some of them to go to as well.
2: Yeah, and we continue to see Governor Brian Kemp getting his frequent flyer miles because um, he is just coming off of his lengthy visit to Israel. And when you were with him in Israel, you and I were slacking, and I joked, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the Paris trip," and I was just kidding. And you said, "Oh yeah, no, no, that's next month." Yeah, I said that's. <laughs> I'm actually not on the Paris trip. Um, and then uh, earlier today, we were just talking about, wouldn't it be wonderful to be? In Tbilisi in June. Well, Governor Brian Kemp will be there. Um, This is just a sign. He's a second-term governor. He is uh, got the economy at home really rolling. He is quite popular at home. There's no reason to be in Georgia. Or frankly, in America in the summer, while Donald Trump is facing indictments, all you're going to do is talk about Donald Trump and indictments. Um, and he's listening, he's just gotten this immense level of freedom right now. The Assemb- Georgia General Assembly is not in session. He doesn't have to be campaigning. It's not an election year. It's the right year for somebody with national ambitions, or even national possibilities to be expanding his horizons, um, as well as getting into some of these countries where it really does provide opportunities to go in and talk about the state and talk about the tax packages that Georgia can offer, that South Carolina is not going to offer, that Texas is not going to offer. All of these southeastern states are all competing against each other. For the exact same companies and the exact same industries and you need to be in front of the executives and the tax officials to make your case and so that's what a lot of these trips are all about typically governors um don't have the flexibility and freedom to travel as much as governor kemp is right now but as we just said there he, he is having it, the planets are kind of aligning for him right now to get out and about and he's not wasting any time <laughs> doing it and i actually I do feel like I should apply for credentials on the Paris trip.
0: Yeah, look, it's not too late. (laughs) He's not there yet. He'll be in the other Georgia for a few days. It is noteworthy, too, that his office says he's the first sitting U.S. governor to visit the nation of Georgia while they're still governor. So that is a little tidbit as well. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, you're right, Patricia, it's perfect timing for him. He did not plan that out. He did not have uh, knowledge of the indictment, but it sure certainly was a good time for him to skip town. Uh, He was in town doing the weekend's Republican State Convention, which, of course, uh, he made very clear he was going to skip. But he said, don't use the B word as in boycott.
3: Well, you know, listen, the Atlanta paper keeps saying that I boycotted the convention. I did not boycott the convention. I just didn't go because the the chairman, as you know, uh, was working against the whole statewide ticket last year, and I wasn't going to go uh, and support uh, an event that he was in charge of. You know, I've worked very hard for Republicans. I'm going to continue to do that to make sure that we win Georgia in 2024. I did that to make sure that we won at the state level in 2022, um, and I'm committed to doing that in the future.
0: Patricia, those were some of his strongest comments against the now former chair of the Republican Party, David Schaefer. Who, yes, did actively work against Republican incumbents. Most notably, he actively worked against Brad Raffensberger, the Secretary of State. He aligned himself with the pro-Trump wing of the party, showed up at a Donald Trump rally, led a, a party that was in danger of irrelevancy throughout most of his watch, benefited from tens of millions of dollars from the runoff, the Senate runoffs in 2021, which just led to a flood of money. But um really kind of factionalized the Republican party in a way that we haven't seen in recent years, at least, and leaves a party that is still fighting in a tug of war over Donald Trump wing of the party and the more mainstream wing. And, and governor Kemp said, you know what, I'm not going to bother with it. And he's, he's on his way. He's already developing his own parallel organization. Thanks to a law he signed that allows him to create a leadership committee that can raise unlimited funds and coordinate directly with his campaign.
2: It's not called a boycott. I'm just not going to go, which is a boycott. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to call it that, but that is what it is. Um, and it is much bigger than just the governor not going to the convention. It is the governor separating himself from the apparatus of the state party. And there's a big difference between Georgia Republicans, you know, sort of like writ large, and then the Georgia Republican Party as a piece of political apparatus, It has gotten extremely marginalized here in the state because of so much of its delegates and its leadership's allegiance to Donald Trump, Donald Trump's ensuing um, battle against Brian Kemp for a number of reasons, but especially over the 2020 election, and Governor Brian Kemp deciding... I'm not going to play that. I am making my decision on the election. I'm setting up my own fundraising apparatus. In fact, I'm practically setting up my own state committee apparatus. He's now going to go from supporting his own campaign to supporting the campaigns of other members of the legislature, other candidates around the state even other candidates running for federal office. Those are all the functions of a state party, building a ground infrastructure, um, raising money, getting ready to, at some point, in fact, already has, put up ads for candidates, start messaging. That is essentially a political party. It is not a good situation for the state party, not just to have its leader kind of in a rivalry or a fight with the governor, it's now being sidelined by the governor. The most popular Republican in the state doesn't need the state party at this point. Um, That's not good. The real task ahead of Josh McCoons, who has won the chairmanship of the state party, um, who is both the handpicked successor to David Schaefer, but is also promising unity it will really behoove the party to get the governor and the party, they don't have to be on the same page, but at least working together and working together for shared goals. Honestly, as long as Donald Trump is in the picture, I'm not 100% sure how that happens, but that's going to be the very important job of Josh McCoon's going
0: forward. Let's talk about Josh McCoon. Uh, He is the new party chair. He won with David Schaefer's endorsement. He's very close to David Schaefer. He also... Picked up some support from some mainstream delegates, the far right delegates, also back to many of them, at least uh, the Georgia Republican Assembly, the far right faction that that tried to put in that ideological purity test that didn't go anywhere. Um, But that group was among his endorsements. McCoon, you know, he's he's trying to at least he's saying he's trying to build a broader party. Um, he called himself relentlessly positive in an interview with me. He said he would be a unifying force who could refocus the party on kitchen table issues like the economy, like public safety, uh, while also engaging with the pro-Trump conservatives who have gained all that clout in the party. Now he goes way back. He's a state senator from Columbus. Who is best known at the Capitol for two key reasons. The first was he was a champion of religious liberty legislation that was beloved by many grassroots conservatives and hated by a lot of establishment-minded officials. That legislation ended up passing in 2016, and it ended up getting vetoed by then governor Nathan Deal, kicked back to the state party conventions where a lot of those delegates who were talking about now, at least a different version of them were talking about sanctioning the then governor over his veto of that bill. Uh, also Josh McCune was known as a proponent of more transparency under the gold dome and he helped champion new stringent ethics legislation that aimed to bring a lot more accountability to how politics works under the gold dome. So look, not beloved by the establishment, not not beloved by many of his Republican colleagues in the Senate at the time, right? A lot of them banded together and they helped oust him from a chairmanship. Later though, he kind of, reset his relationships with them and and many of them ended up endorsing his 2018 bid for Secretary of State, which of course he ended up losing to Brad Raffensperger. He came in uh, third place, if I recall. Uh, He's kind of spent a lot of time still engaged in politics, but not in elected politics. And he's been waiting for this moment, Patricia. Uh, he won. He won by a somewhat narrow margin, a couple hundred votes, over Rebecca Yardley was his clo- was the number two. Uh, she had a number of, you know, big name endorsements as well. She had a lot of support from North Georgia, in particular where she lives. Um, but Patricia, after his victory, they all, the three of them we saw on stage, they joined together and they held hands together and they said, we are united.
1: Well,
2: that's a good place to start from. We'll see how long it lasts. Um, I've heard some rumblings that the unity may not be, may not even have lasted much past that photo op, but we'll see. And we'll continue to report out on that. I want to talk about a couple of other things that we saw at the GOP convention that I just found fascinating. First of all, there was the attempt to change the rules to allow a group of Republicans, the smaller group Republicans, to decide which Republican candidates can run on the Republican line as long as they're not deemed traitors by the smaller group of Republicans um, evaluating their candidacies, not to be chosen by the gov- by the voters, but rather to be chosen by um, the GOP delegates. Were they delegates who were going to be making Yeah, that yeah.
0: It's a little confusing, but yes, it basically a majority of the delegates could decide whether or not a candidate could qualify to run. So it would give the final power in deciding who could be a Republican, who could be a, who could qualify to, re, re, to run as a Republican on the ballot to the state party convention's delegates, rather than, you know, folks at the Capitol and party officials who might sign off on that. And, you know, it's very subjective. And that was one of the concerns, which was even from far-right conservatives, even from Tea Party types and others who were anti-establishment saying, hey, look, you know, this could benefit us today, but tomorrow the establishment could take over the state party. And they could block, you know, insurgents from running. And then, of course, it was opposed by many of those mainstream Republicans who knew in the short term what would, what that what would happen. And we both know in the short term what would happen too, which is, you know, I was on all those Zoom calls for the proponents of this measure. Two names kept on coming up over and over again: Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. So, you know, the governor doesn't have to worry about being on the ballot until, well, at least twenty twenty six if he runs for the U.S. Senate. Um, and same thing with Brad Raffensperger, but neither of them want a a, a purity test. And, and and many other candidates would not want to be subjected to a, a purity test based on where delegates see them. And look, we saw how chaotic that process was over the weekend. It took a very, very long time, a lot of squabbling, just to vote for some of these party leadership posts. There was a lot of concern about the electronic voting machines that folks were using, little clickers that people were using to vote. And whether or not that was accurate, imagine a vote on whether or not Governor Brian Kemp or another powerful Republican could even stand to, to uh, for election as a Republican in the future by these delegates. It, it'll it'll it would change the entire GOP convention game.
2: Yeah, we could see. We were seated up in an area basically like the. Um I guess it's sort of like the choir balcony, you know, where if you were Mm -hmm. in church, where the choir stands uh, behind and above the congregation. So we were looking over the action and we could see as discussion of this rule was coming up, there had been an earlier effort to defeat the rule change, rule three, uh, defeat the rule change in the rules committee. And then it ended up coming to the floor as a proposal as well. And then there was a vote on that. And there was a fight among Delegates, some delegates, about that equipment, the electronic voting equipment, and then suspicions being raised of how do we know this voting equipment works? How do we know these clickers work? I want to see proof that these clickers work. Um, and extensive doubts about the veracity of the vote. And so, you could see sort of embedded within this conversation people who just weren't going to trust the outcome and uh, almost still didn't trust the outcome based on the voting equipment. And that is the issue that defined the party so thoroughly in 2020, uh, even infused much of Donald Trump's speech to delegates, continuing to talk about how the election was rigged against him. It wasn't. Um, Then adding that the election was rigged and stolen in 2022 primaries against Jody Heiss and David Perdue and the other candidates who had run on the pro-Trump team. So this kind of continuing to undermine elections, election systems, and then seeing even the party itself and Barry Fleming, a state representative up front, trying to quell the dissent and doubters um, after so many years of this party insisting that its own election losses summon the party, not all their own election losses were a part of election fraud as well. To see election fraud being a, being uh, accusations lodged at some of the Republicans who had even perhaps been a part of the earlier accusations was just a full circle moment.
0: Yeah, it was very unique. Also seeing Barry Fleming, as you mentioned, he was a state lawmaker from out in the Augusta area, very conservative Republican who was to be the floor, the, the, the convention leader um, who was trying to manage all these differing conspiracy theories and everything thrown out him. Well, he was also the, one of the architects of SB202, the massive Georgia voting overhaul that was passed in the wake of Donald Trump's conspiracy theory laden defeat in Georgia. So it all comes full circle, as you mentioned. Patricia, Josh McCoon wasn't the only Republican elected to be a new leader of the Georgia GOP. But what was marked about some of the other folks who were elected to be part of his leadership team Uh, is that many of them are election deniers themselves. One is Brian Pritchard. He is the party's new first vice chair. He claimed the 2020 election was stolen. He now also, by the way, faces allegations of voting illegally nine times while serving a felony sentence. He says he's done nothing wrong. Uh, The second vice chairman, David Cross, has frequently promoted election fraud theories and conspiracy theories and the like. And he's also part of a lawsuit. uh, No, he's a close ally, I should say, with uh, someone who brought a lawsuit alleging counterfeit ballots tainted the 2020 election. And the list goes on. Susie Voiles particularly stands out. She ran for U.S. House a couple years ago on a campaign that focused on her efforts to reverse Trump's defeat. So, And to be clear, I want to make sure our listeners know it, the, these folks didn't beat like moderate, more mainstream candidates for the most part. They also beat, in particular, two fake electors were among the defeated candidates for these higher up posts. So it wasn't like the the far right beats the the, the middle. The far right, in many instances, beat the far right. It was just a very telling moment for the state Republican Party.
2: Yeah, and it's that kind of um, that kind of angst in those moments. That was driving some of the concern and anxiety outside of the hall among delegates, even of the Republican Party, who consider themselves Republicans, um, did not participate in trying to overturn the election. And they're starting to say do I really belong in this party anymore? You know, they want to fight for the party that they were drawn to when they were, um, when they came in with either Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush. Um, they don't connect to that energy in the party, but it does feel like that's the energy that's driving this particular leadership of the GOP um, apparatus. And And it'll be fascinating to see what Josh McCune does as chairman, um, what he does to unite the party, how he works to unite the party, either even amongst their own delegates. Um, the one unite unifying theme we certainly heard was um, a desire to oust President Joe Biden. Once mm-hmm. the conversation turned to Joe Biden, you could kind of just... Feel pe- the anxiety leave people's bodies and say yes. Let's get rid of Joe Biden. You know they all agree they want to get rid of Joe Biden. But there is just so much internal angst right now over wrestling for control of the party. There will be this upcoming um, battle over who is the nominee, who's the right nominee, um, who can win, uh, who do the who does the base like versus who can actually defeat Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, that is their really, really, um, that's the future of what they've got ahead of them. If they could just get past the Trump conversation, it does feel like this is a party that can easily get on the same page about at defeating President Joe Biden, they certainly all got on the same page about how to get behind Brian Kemp. But it's just that Trump factor that feels like it's continuing to get in the way. Although it's also the factor that's animating a lot of the energy in that room. Yep. So um, you know, therein lies the challenge for that party.
0: Yeah, and look, maybe Democrats always say Donald Trump is their best get-out-the-vote, you know, tool, right? That, that that no one is a uniquely polarizing. For Democrats is Donald Trump. Well, maybe Joe Biden will end up playing that role. Um, we certainly saw in a poll that came out just a couple of days before the Republican convention that was put out by Governor Kemp's political machine that Donald Trump's not in great position in Georgia, but neither is Joe Biden. Both their approval ratings are, are, are middling at best. And uh, both of them are kind of neck and neck um, despite those issues. And so it does leave the door open. It looks like at least for a unifying candidate to be able to come in. But look, Donald Trump's also double digits ahead in Georgia, and he has a huge lead in most other states' presidential primary preference polls. So there's a lot more to unpack there. But I can tell you, I can report that there was moments of that convention where I think both of us felt like we were almost sounding boards for for more mainstream Republicans who would come up and just say, I mean, after Carrie Lake, the, the, the former Arizona gubernatorial contender, after she spoke and she was very um, a lot of bellicose rhetoric and a lot of veiled threats. And, you know, we have basically saying Trump supporters have guns and we won't let the justice department lay a finger on, on Donald Trump, S- stuff like that. We had a number of people come up to us say, not everyone is like that. There are a lot of pro camp delegates here. We're just a lot quieter. We're, we're more afraid to show our faces. We're more afraid to be quoted. Um, but a number of them did come up and kind of tell us, their uh, their internal tug of war.
2: Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, the challenge for Republicans is that it's it's not always the case that that message is getting out. It's not always the case that it's reflected by the state leadership of the Republican Party. And so while there certainly were there was resistance to Donald Trump in the room, some people even introduced themselves to us as, quote, the resistance. They're like, we're the resistance. Um, uh, there needs to be a place in that party for those people to feel comfortable and feel valued and feel like they have a place to put their vote, that they can't, that there are Republicans within the party or people uh, standing for election who they can support. Um, but with Donald Trump, it really does feel like and you're with them or you're against him. There were not there was not a lot of gray area in that room about how people feel about Donald Trump. And that's what they're going to have to deal with um, in this primary process.
0: Well, coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions for the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically
1: Georgia from the AJC. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada.